Well, good morning, church. If I don't get to preach this morning, uh, that means that I get to do the next best thing, which is to talk about someone that I love and admire, the man who is going to preach, and that is a great delight to me to do that. Seth Miller uh, is a, an old friend of mine. I've asked him to come preach here this morning, and, and believe it or not, although Seth, uh, who's going to come up here in a few minutes, although he lives here now in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, he was originally from the Pacific Northwest, so he went from the PNW to the DFW, see what I did there? And uh, he's living here, but uh, our roots go back uh, several years. Uh, I was a, a fairly new pastor in Spokane. I think I'd only been the college pastor for a couple years, and I preached at Moody Bible Institute's chapel, and uh, Seth was there among some others who came to Faith Bible Church after that, and uh, he's been a part of my life ever since. Um, he's also one of the men, back in Spokane, uh, one of my jobs was to pour into guys who had an interest in being pastors, interest in pursuing pastoral ministry. He was one of those guys that I got to spend time with and, and pour into, and and I think I am the... Uh, uh, the more blessed of of that time together. Seth was born in, in Lewiston, Idaho, um, and uh, moved to Spokane to attend Moody Bible, where he also attended our church, Faith Bible Church. Last year, we sent him out uh, down here to go to Reformed Theological Seminary to pursue pastoral ministry training. And uh, he and I are both so grateful that by God's providence, we are re reunited again to uh, not only be in the same state, but even in the same um, same city. So we're, we're grateful for that. And, and, and there's lots of things about Seth that I, I love and appreciate and admire. In fact, there are, are four things in particular about Seth that um, are, are very precious to me. Uh, first, number one, Seth wants to live his life recklessly abandoned for the Great Commission. Seth is a man that when you spend time with him, you know that he knows that he exists for the imperial majesty of Jesus Christ and for the glory of his invincible sovereign empire. He is a man who is following Christ, and that's the kind of man that I want to be around. Second, Seth has a, uh, uh, the, the sacred text of Holy Scripture is his deepest delight and his highest allegiance. Seth is a man who knows that the word of God is, um, that, that, to he, that to read Holy Scripture is to hear God speak. Seth is a man who knows that, that the, the only uh, true happy life in this life is to tremble beneath God's word. Number three, Seth loves the bride of Christ, the local church. Seth understands that the local church is not some optional preference of life, but rather is a matter of cosmic significance, that the church is the instrument that God uses to advance the plan of salvation. And then number four, Seth is a man who trusts Christ and a man who treasures Christ, which made him an easy choice to have here come and preach to us. Seth is a gifted expositor, as you'll see. He is a theologian, wise beyond his years. He is an exegete of skill and precision, and this morning he is our usher, our usher, our exegetical usher who will lead us and help us be a people who pray with urgency, with passion, and with persistence. So would you please welcome my friend, Seth Miller. Well, thank you, Jared, for the kind words. Uh, it's a tremendous joy to be with you here this morning to open up God's Word to hear it preach to all of our hearts. I was so blessed by Jared's ministry um, about five years ago. I st still the greatest sermon I've ever heard was Jared preaching on Isaiah chapter 6. I don't know if he's done that here yet, but get him to because it's a fantastic sermon. And 
changed my life in many ways. And so I'm really grateful for his ministry. And you guys are in great hands being under his ministry. Let's go to God in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, you call us to come to you and pray and ask for ourselves on the behalf of others all those things necessary for our life and our salvation. So we come humbly and ask for you to speak to us through your word, that your spirit would come and illumine our minds, giving us clarity and insight into your will. But most of all, would you glorify your son as his teaching is preached and brought to bear upon the people of God. Create in us clean hearts, O God, that are prone to listen to your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jesus' teaching on prayer here in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, takes on the form of a parable. The purpose of many parables is to conceal and hide the truth from the hard-hearted, Jesus would often tell them when the Pharisees were around, the religious elites of Jesus' own day. And then often he would take his disciples to the side and explain to them what the meaning of these parables were. So with that in mind, parables can often be difficult to understand. It's hard to discern the singular point, the one meaning of the parable. But in this passage... Luke gives us the point from the beginning. He does all the hard interpretive work for us. He does the difficult exegetical work right before our eyes from the very beginning in verse 1. He states it plainly. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So this is the point of the parable, that we ought to always pray and not lose heart. Heart. We know that persistent prayer is a command in the Bible and vital to our Christian lives. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And in Colossians 4.2, pray steadfastly. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Or even in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 1611, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. And we know that Jesus modeled this for us during his earthly ministry. Luke makes it a point to join together the significant events in Jesus' life with his prayers. It says in Luke 3 that Jesus was praying at his baptism when heaven was opened up to him and the Spirit descended upon him. Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God in Luke chapter 6 before he called his own disciples. Before Jesus went to the cross, enduring the terrible suffering and shame that was due to us, taking on the wrath of God, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying All night. And Luke says this is actually the very pattern of Jesus' own ministry. He would often slip away in the wilderness to pray, Luke 5.16. Jesus, more than anyone else, was a man devoted to prayer. And he hasn't ceased praying now either. More than anyone else, 
He prays for us. He makes a constant intercession for us. He always lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7.25 The one who gives us this teaching on prayer has truly lived out what it means to pray always and to not lose heart. And so he therefore calls us into this kind of persistent prayer. And you may respond and say, well, that's Jesus. He's perfect. Of course, he prays all the time. He's God. Of course. I can't pray like that. To which I respond, exactly. As sinful people, unable to do much, if anything, on our own strength, should we not pray even more? Should we not go to the throne room of grace even more than our Lord, who was perfect? But this is often not the case. We have even more need for persistent prayer than the Lord Jesus. So the point of this passage is that we pray always and not lose heart. That is the effect it is designed to have on our own hearts this morning. And it understands our plight. It understands where we come from. That we often lose heart in our praying. That we don't always pray. That we often rely on our own strength. This passage understands that. And in fact, if we did pray always and not lose heart, then this passage wouldn't be for us. But if you're the mother or the father of a child who you've prayed for since before they were even born and they've walked away from the faith, that you've pleaded to God for their salvation, and it's difficult to keep on praying, it's hard to keep up the faith, well, this passage is for you. It's calling to you to keep persisting in prayer. If you've been a Christian for years and there's that one particular sin that you just can't seem to shed, that it debilitates you from all kind of growth and Christian maturity, it seems like. And you've prayed daily that the Lord would take away this thorn from your flesh, and yet it seems like this sin is so deeply entangled with your nature. Well, this passage is for you. This passage is calling you to keep praying and to not lose heart. And if you've prayed, most importantly, for Christ's return, your kingdom come, your will be done, and you feel discouraged by the two millennia that have gone, ba- that have gone by since Christ has entered into this world, and you just see the world seemingly get worse and worse, well, this passage is for you. Keep praying, keep persisting, and do not lose heart. The Lord Jesus knows our frame, that we often don't pray with daily regularity. And one commentator beautifully states this, we know that perseverance in prayer is a rare and difficult attainment. You hear those words? It's a rare and difficult attainment. And it is a manifestation of our unbelief that when our first prayers are not successful, we immediately throw away not only hope, but all the passion of praying. We are prone to wander. We are prone to lose heart. But it is an undoubted evidence of our faith if we are disappointed of our wish and yet do not lose courage. 
Most properly, therefore, does Christ recommend to his disciples to persevere in praying. You see, Christ knows our hearts, but he doesn't want to leave us where we're at this morning. He wants to lift us up, to make us see his grace, to make us see his compassion and his goodwill towards us, to strengthen our feeble knees in prayer. He wants to give us persistence and boldness. So this is the point of the parable, most plainly stated in verse 1. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then in verses 2 through 5, we have the parable itself. In it, Jesus gives us a story about an unrighteous judge and a widow. We are first introduced to the judge in verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now let's think about that for a second. These are not the qualities that we want to find in a judge. He didn't fear God. He was his own authority. He was a law to himself. He had no higher authority, no moral framework for him to discern between what was right and wrong, what was just and unjust. Nor did he have respect for his fellow neighbors. He wasn't interested in looking for the fair treatment of his citizens. It didn't bother him that people were being oppressed by the rich and the powerful, and they were crying out for justice. He didn't care. The innocent would cry out to him, and he had no respect for them. This judge, you see, was a willful lawbreaker. He broke both tables of the Ten Commandments, the first four being that he didn't fear God, and the second grouping, which is five through ten, he didn't He didn't care about his neighbors. He didn't love the Lord God with all of his heart, mind, and strength. He didn't love his neighbors as himself. And we understand how terrifying it is when there are people in the justice system who take a bribe, who make decisions based upon their own agenda, and really don't care about carrying out justice for their citizens. I recently watched the film Gosnell about the abortion doctor who committed all sorts of injustices and atrocities at his so-called clinic in Pennsylvania. Without spoiling the details of the movie, one of the stunning moments of the film was when the investigators were bringing all of these crimes to uh, a judge, really, attorney general of the state, and they were bringing it, it to her, and we were expecting her reaction to be horrified that this man was killing children after birth. But she didn't react in that way. She was careful because she realized, well, this, if this goes out wrongly, this is going to make abortion look bad. And so this attorney general had no care for justice. She just cared about her political agenda. And what Jesus is doing is he's setting forth a character that embodies a total disregard for justice and love for God, the worst kind of human being. Then comes along a widow under his jurisdiction who needs justice in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. The problem is, 
She's not going to get justice from this unrighteous judge. He doesn't care about justice. It doesn't matter that she wanted justice from her adversary. He didn't have any respect for her. And as a widow, this would have been quite terrifying. No husband, probably no family to protect her. All she has is this wicked judge. The law was supposed to be on her side to protect her in times like this. But this cruel judge really doesn't care about the law. Yet in her desperation, knowing that she's a widow and she has no means of defending herself, she keeps coming to him, asking for justice, pleading her case before him with no one advocating for her but herself. And so in verse 4 it says, For a while this judge refuses But then he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It really gets quite comical at this point in the parable. Here we have this hard-hearted judge and this poor, lonely widow coming to him so repetitively that he is so disrupted in his way of life that he just finally gives in. I kind of picture this poor widow coming first thing on Monday morning when the judge is going to his office, and there she was. Judge, judge, remember me, a widow. I need justice. I need justice. And he would just shrug her off, say, get away from me, you widow. And then later on in the week, there she was again, bothering him even at his own home. He'd go home to rest on the couch, and there was the widow bothering him, pleading her case, saying, Judge, judge, don't you remember me? I'm, I'm that widow who needs justice, my adversary. And then, maybe even more comically, he's on the treadmill Thursday morning, and there she is on the machine next to him, saying, Remember me, judge, remember me, I'm that widow. And her constant going to him, her constant pleading, her constant running up to him and stating her case bothers this poor judge to the point where he just finally gives in. So the judge in total self-interest gives her justice so that she won't beat him down with her continual coming. The Greek kind of for beat down can also be translated to blacken one's eye, to give an uppercut. Here this judge is almost afraid of the widow because she is so persistent, so bold and audacious that nobody else has he ever encountered come to him like this so repetitively. Here this poor lonely widow is so persistent in getting justice that this self-centered judge just wants to get her off his back and protect himself. So that he says, here, have what you want. Just quit bothering me, you crazy old widow. And so the lesson of the parable is quite clear to us. It is by the widow's persistence that she is able to coerce the wicked judge into giving her justice. And there's a right way and a wrong way to apply that to prayer. The right way is to understand that prayer is hard work. Answers don't come easy. 
The widow persisted even when she was probably was at a point of giving up. And in many ways, that is our prayer lives. That it's hard work. Answers don't come easy often. It's a joyful and a glorious work. But it's hard work nonetheless. But there's also a wrong way to apply the parable. And that is to say, if we just learn to pray more, then we could somehow coerce God into giving us something that he is unwilling to give if we would just bother him enough, then surely he would lay down his interests in glorifying himself and take up our cause to get us off his back. But that's not at all how Jesus wants us to understand this parable. In verses 6 through 8, Jesus sets before us the proper understanding and application of this parable. He doesn't mean to say, Go pray more. See what the widow did. Go thou and do likewise. That's not at all what he's just trying to say. He's after more than that. Yes, he wants us to be persistent. He wants us to continue praying and not losing heart. But he wants to get to the bottom of why we often lose heart in prayer. And then to address it with a promise. Which brings us to our third and final point. In verses 6 through 8. The promise from the Lord. Jesus' application of the parable comes in the form of an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Here's a free lesson in rhetoric. An argument from the lesser to the greater is putting two things in comparison to emphasize a point of continuity. So basically, it's saying if something is true at this lesser level, then how much more true is it at this greater level? Perfect example of an argument from the lesser to the greater is Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, where he's teaching his disciples to not be anxious, and he points out those pesky sparrows who are, just seems like there's an innumerable amount of them, and yet they are all fed by the Heavenly Father. And so he reasons from an argument from the lesser to the greater by saying, if they are fed, how much more Does your Father in heaven care for you, and will he not feed you? And he does it again, and he says, Look at the lilies of the field. They're here today and gone tomorrow, but the Lord orchestrates. He creates them with such beauty and splendor that it was incomparable even to Solomon's splendor and beauty. And he says, How much more then will God clothe you, who he cares for? more for you than those flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow. So that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. So Jesus is making this application to prayer by saying, if this unrighteous judge can be moved to give justice to the widow by her persistence, how much more will God give justice to his elect as they cry out to him day and night? So that's the argument that Jesus is making. And there are two life-giving distinctions between our prayer lives and this parable that need to be made. And the first thing you need to see is that God is nothing like this judge. He's a good and holy judge. He's a just judge. He is the very meaning and substance of righteousness and justice. He is the perfect judge. And even more than this, he is our Father who is in heaven, who doesn't see prayer as a nuisance, 
but rather sees it as a pleasing aroma in his sight. He knows what we need before we even ask of him. And yet he invites us to come to him and ask, to come to the door of prayer and knock and knock and knock and knock until we hear answers from him. And he always gives those answers. But our prayerlessness, the fact that we often do lose heart in prayer, that we don't even take up prayer over the things that we need, is a testament that we do not see him in this light. Our prayer lives paint a picture of a God that is far more similar to this unrighteous judge than the Father who created, saved, and loved us. I believe we can carry around a distorted view of God that leads us to prayerlessness, that we can begin to view God like He's unapproachable, that He's restrictive, He's conditional, and He's uninterested in our lives. But this is not the God of the Bible. He cares for us. He hears our cries in the middle of the night when nobody else can hear us. And so that's the first distinction you need to see, that God is nothing like this judge. So how much more shall we be encouraged to persist in our prayers? But there's a second distinction that should be brought out in the parable in verse 7. You notice how it says, And will not God give justice to his elect? This is important. We are called his elect. Though being a widow shows forth our desperate poverty and our desperate need to going to the unrighteous judge, it doesn't paint the whole picture of our Christian lives. In fact, we are called God's elect. We are not cast off by God like this widow is by the judge, but rather we have been entered into a relationship with God. We are not far off, distant, removed people from the presence of God. No, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are his elect. What does that even mean, that we are his elect? Well, it means that in the Father's loving kindness, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It means that before the foundation of the world was laid, the Father chose you. He set His loving kindness upon you. He ordained to sovereignly draw you to the promise of His gospel and to give you the Holy Spirit. He says, in effect, in election, that I want you as my daughter or my son, not because of anything good that you have done or because of some foreseen faith. No, I want you for the praise of my glorious grace. That's election. And that's what Jesus is assigning to us in prayer. You see, without election, there is no prayer. It took the sovereign and loving grace of God to call us out of our darkness and reconstitute us as his beloved sons and daughters in Christ. Because we have been adopted and given the spirit of adoption, we can pray our Father who is in heaven. And we can also cry out, Abba, Father. 
because it was the Father's good pleasure to give His Son on the cross for our salvation, we are enabled to access the throne room of grace. You see, we have no right to prayer. We didn't deserve to be heard by God, but rather, He calls us, He blesses us solely by His grace. That's election. That we didn't have to do anything to earn it. And this is the basis and foundation of our prayer life. A good homework assignment would be to go home and read the last 20 or so verses of Romans chapter 8. And you will see how adoption, election, the spirit, and prayer are all intertwined together into this beautiful mosaic of a sort. It's, it's quite a wonderful picture that the Apostle Paul paints And each of them informs one and the other. And so you can see how adoption grounds our prayer because we have been elected in Christ. So go home and do that. And Jared will check next week. Prayer, as it relates to election, simply is the byproduct of being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is an entrance into the triune fellowship. We pray to the Father with the help of the Spirit, in the name of the Son. And in this light, we can be encouraged to pray bold prayers with the promise of Romans chapter 8. If he who did not spare even his own Son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So There is the foundation laid for prayer. So then, we do not lose heart when we cry to him day and night knowing that we pray to a loving Father and that as His elect, we have a privileged place in His courtroom. He says that we belong there by His grace. If these two distinctions between the parable and our prayer lives are not made, it is far too easy to lose heart in prayer, to begin to doubt and ask, does God even care about what I'm praying for? Does he even listen? It's been 15 years and I've been praying for the same thing and I haven't seen any answers. Does he care? He gave his own son to save you. Will he not graciously give you all things with him? He answers our prayers. He listens to our prayers. Our prayers are not for nothing. But we are still confronted with the question, why does he delay? Why does he delay? If all these things are true, why do our prayers get drawn out? Why does he insist that it be this way? Well, if I can bring your eyes back to verse 7, Jesus sets this very question before us. Will he delay long over them? And he joins it to the promise, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus understands our plight once again. He knows that we get discouraged when our prayers are not answered. So he adds the promise in verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus is saying that God does not keep putting us off, waiting till the day when he is bothered enough to finally answer our prayers. No, he really does take into consideration our prayers In mysterious and unexplainable ways, he uses them to accomplish his very own sovereign will. God doesn't delay needlessly, but will answer our prayers according to his will, speedily. 
Delayed prayer can really distress the people of God. We know that we can sometimes ask for the wrong things or even the right things with the wrong motives. We kind of get lost in this confusion and then we say to ourselves, why bother if I'm praying in the wrong manner or for the wrong things? Why does this even matter? Well, God's faithful in it. and He meets us where we are at in our own confusion and sinfulness. But he still calls us to come, to ask, to seek, to knock, and to approach him with boldness and faith. And he promises that he will not delay. He will give justice speedily. He will not put us off like that unrighteous judge did to that poor widow. He will avenge us. And you may say that you've never seen your prayers answered in a speedily manner. But do remember that God's timing is simply not always our own timing. He sees the benefit for our own souls in demonstrating that we really want something before he just goes ahead and gives us it. Sometimes he can draw out prayer because he wants to ask us, do you really want it? Do you really desire to see my kingdom grow? Do you really want to see your child become a child of God? And so sometimes prayers can be drawn out to demonstrate to us, do we really want what we're praying for? The Lord doesn't only want us to meet, only want to meet with us in the ends, but he also wants to meet with us in the means as well. In his wisdom, he sees value in calling his children to persist in asking things for him. Of course, we have to understand that this justice he administers speedily is still in line with verse 1. That we not lose heart and that we pray always, that we persist. These two truths come together in the sovereign majesty and will of God. His timing is not our own. There's that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring that I always love when Gandalf is coming to the Shire and there's Frodo waiting for him. And he says to Gandalf, you're late. Where have you been? And Gandalf, you know, in his wizardly way, responds, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Our heavenly father is never late, nor is he early. But in love, he answers our prayers precisely when he means to. And 2 Peter 3.8 is so important to keep into perspective when our prayers seem delayed. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Don't forget the kind of God that we're praying to. He transcends time. He is all sovereign, all wise, and will bring about what he sets out to accomplish in his own timing. So we are still called to trust him, to keep knocking, to keep praying, and to not lose heart. And this is all set in the context of Christ's return. Chapter, the end of chapter 17 is Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God and when it will come. And he says that it will come in ways that aren't expected, that it will catch people by surprise. And he returns to that theme at the end of verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, 
Will he find faith on earth? Many of our prayers will be answered when Jesus Christ returns. Our prayers for justice will be finally and fully answered when Christ brings his kingdom at the end of the age. It will be then that justice will roll down like waters. The central petition of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will, will be, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will be finally and fully consummated when Christ returns. Our prayers for the healing of our ailments will be met with new creation bodies. So many of the times that I'm praying for people, this country, uh, the church, I kind of foolishly think to myself, you know, I could have probably saved a lot of time if I just would have prayed, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. You know, it really, really saved me some time because if Christ would just come back, he would return and bring his kingdom in all of its fullness of grace and blessing that he would change his people in a twinkling of an eye and all things would be made well as they are meant to be. It's kind of a powerful thing to think about that. That when Christ returns, there will be a final and full answer to our prayer. So we persist in asking for our needs to be filled, for hearts to be changed until that day when he returns. Because on that one great and last day, when the one who was pierced for our transgressions returns, we will see the fullness of his blessing. We will see answers to prayers that we gave up on years ago. All of it to be laid bare before our eyes. And then we will say in response, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. On that day, when the Son of Man returns... Our scales that cover our eyes will fall off and we'll begin to see the Father as the loving Father that He really is. We'll see that He really did hear all of our cries in the middle of the night, day in and day out, and that He has truly, speedily administered the justice that we need. And so then Jesus leaves us with this final piercing question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the punchline that is meant to stick with us as we leave this place and go about our week. When Jesus returns, will he find a people who demonstrate their faith by praying always and not losing heart? What will Jesus find in his church when he returns? Will he find a people who are so devoted to programs, to being culturally relevant to their own strength, that they have forgotten the first great and important work of prayer? Or will he find a praying people? Will he find this church to be a praying people when he returns, that look to God for justice? Look to God to grow the people that gathered together in worship, that didn't try to just do things on their own strength, but look to God in faith. So what audacious and bold prayers has God placed on you individually? Is it for the salvation of someone near you? 
Well, then keep persisting in prayer. Do not lose heart. Is it for some area of growth and holiness, for some area of maturity that you want to grow in? Well, keep praying, keep asking, keep depending upon the Spirit for help. How about as a church? What do we want God to do in the life of our congregation, in this congregation? Go to Him and pray. Go to Him and ask. The Lord hears the cries of of His people. But so often it is a testament to our lack of faith that we ask not and so we have not. So why don't we ask God great and bold things and look to Him in faith to graciously give us those things? May we not rob ourselves of some blessing because we never wanted to bother God for it. You know, in various prayer meetings that I've been in, I've had things that I feel like God's pressed upon my heart to pray for. And yet, in a moment of embarrassment, I don't even want to ask for other people to pray for it because either I trust in my own strength too much or I just don't want to see that prayer get drawn out and to not be answered. I think that's a lack of faith that I have that causes me to be embarrassed by things that I need to pray for. And I think that could be often the case for many of us, that we don't want to ask God for things just because we don't believe that He will really give them to us. Jesus is advocating for bold and audacious prayer, a prayer life that prays always and not loses heart. Allow me to conclude with a bit of a personal example about how this passage took hold of my life. Um, my freshman year at Moody, the president of the college came and preached on this text. And honestly, I don't really remember what he said, um, but I do remember leaving the chapel and thinking that the Spirit, of, the, the Spirit of God really laid upon my heart a desire to pray for my brother's salvation. He was about 32 at the time. He hadn't darkened the door of a church since he was 18 when he moved out of the house. Um, There's really little hope for him to come to the faith, and it caused my parents great um, fear and sadness to see him walk in his sins. But I felt like the Spirit was calling me to pray for his salvation. And so I I just took it up um, daily to pray for him. In about a year span, um, praying in day in and day out, praying that God would change his heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that God would save him. And I'm not the hero of this story by any means because my parents had been praying for 30 years before I even began to pray, but God did save his soul. God rescued him. And beyond even what I asked for, his girlfriend at the time uh, was converted as well, and they both were baptized in a year's time. And so it just reminded me and impressed upon me the need for this persistent prayer. God is willing to hear us. God desires for us to come to Him and to ask things of Him. And so we don't lose heart. I don't know what your story is here today, but this passage is calling all of us to do the same, to pray always and to not lose heart. Because surely the Son of Man is coming 
And will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Our Father, if there was anything that marked the church in Acts, it was its devotion to the word and prayer. Yet we find ourselves to be prayerless, committed to doing things in our own strength and power and forgetting the infinite resources that are ours in Christ. Give us hearts that are inclined to pray. May the gospel take its full effect on us and push us to your throne room of grace where we enter in and cry, Abba, Father, with boldness and authority, pleading the blood of the Lamb. Oh, what treasures there are to be won by prayer. And may we be as Jacob who wrestled all night with you until you blessed him. Be with this body as they go out into the world and bless them and watch over them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.